Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Upbeat from Everything Conducting, the podcast made by conductors. I'm John Devlin, and I'm the music director of the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Enrico Lopez-Yanez, principal pops conductor of the Nashville Symphony. As you know, each week on Upbeat, we discuss concepts related to the field of conducting. And it doesn't matter if you're a conductor, not a conductor, if you're starting to think about conducting, if you hate conducting, it really doesn't matter. We have something for you all. That was some pretty good improv. Thanks. Uh, our, <laughs> our first segment each week is called The 4-4, where Enrico and I will share with you a list of four things related to our topic of the day that we are pretty sure are going to be the most useful for your career. Today, we're taking an upbeat look at working with your wins. Uh, the idea behind today's topic is that the theme for the month at Everything Conducting is working with winds and wind ensembles. And so we're going to look a little bit, Enrico, this time at our pasts as wind players, how we got our start, and then how we translate some of that working knowledge into the orchestra. That's right. I'm really excited to share with you. I mean, we come from opposite sides of the wind section, you and I, so we'll have some good exchanges, I think, uh, and hopefully some interesting insights. But if not, our special guest will absolutely be able to provide some good insight, and that is Mallory Thompson, who is the director of wind ensembles at Northwestern University. We are so excited to have her sharing her expertise with us uh, as one of the leading conductors in the wind ensemble field. So that should be a lot of fun. And it's kind of a weekly theme on Upbeat. It's like, where in the world is Enrico? You're not too far from Northwestern at this moment, are you? That's true. I am currently in Chicago, so waving from a distance to Mallory if uh, she's out there. And hopefully uh, not getting too much car and city noise in this recording. (laughs) (laughs) We we have a good editing team. We'll figure that out, right? Uh, Well, I think we're ready to go. So why don't, Enrico, we give our first Upbeat and head to the fourth. Welcome to the 4-4, where now we're going to take our upbeat look at the topic of working with your wins. Beat 1 is Insights from the Inside. So I don't know that this title actually is applicable to what we're going to be talking about in this beat, John, but I think the idea was that you and I both have a background in being wind players and playing both in wind ensembles and an orchestral context, which, as you know, can be very different playing in a section of clarinets compared to playing in a section where there are two of you or maybe nine in a wind ensemble is quite a different feeling. So we're going to try, I think, to look at a little bit of the psychology of being a player in these ensembles and how that might be different versus if you were a member of the violin section uh, in the orchestral or smaller wind situation. There are going to be some considerations that we as conductors want to take into account, too, when rehearsing and working with these players. I mean, that feeling you get when you step on the podium with a professional orchestra, that's so much of the time. Conductors don't know yet how to interact well in a rehearsal setting with their wind players who are functioning in this highly vulnerable state as soloists all the time, one on a part. And while that may be obvious, the way to help them psychologically and also to get them rallied to your side may not be so obvious. So I think we want to share some of our insights, having gotten through that initial stage of our career where there is that little bit of fear and maybe friction, but also, like you said, having sat in those seats before. So Enrico, one of the places I'd like to start and maybe get your insight into would be um, what are the types of things that you can see when a conductor is you know, rehearsing your section as a trumpet player that helps make it feel productive and respectful? Sure. I think one of the core principles that I always loved is give ideas and let us figure out the how to do mm. things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it sort of off-putting when a conductor says, I would like this specific mallet or this specific mute or this specific unless they happen to be that instrument then okay maybe that's a little understandable but you know i'd much prefer i want a darker sound or i want something more rounded feeling here rather than you telling me how to get it done because it's an individual taste thing too and and the way that i play my instrument 
maybe changing out the mute is not the most effective way for me personally to get the sound that you're looking for. I can do something internally or with my embouchure or, you know, use a different trumpet that you don't know I own to accomplish that at a better, better rate. Um, I'm sure there are situations like that too for clarinet, especially when you have B flat or A considerations or in other things like that. And from the podium, I think there's a sequence that makes sense for how players can be approached to get to those various ways where different types of instruction make sense. So if you hear something erroneous in a run through of a piece, a look to that player just to be like, you heard that too, or like we're on the same page that you're going to fix that next time, that's usually enough. <laughs> then the next time it comes up, if it's still wrong, stopping and saying, hey, can we take a look at rehearsal M? Can we try it from there? without being too specific or too accusatory in the tone, right? Then the third time you hear something wrong, then it maybe makes sense to say, hey, second trumpet, it's sounding a little flat to me in bar four. Can we, then it like there's, you've given the person a couple chances to correct it on their own, right? That's one way. Another thing that I found is very helpful is the way we use language when we're working with these people who are very vulnerable because they are alone on those parts. And so I find myself in the subjunctive often with the winds. Also, I find myself using the title of their chair rather than their name. So instead of saying, second violins, you're late, I might say, mm-hmm. second trumpet. It sounds to me like it might be a little bit behind at rehearsal O. Can we try it again and just be a little bit more on the front edge of the beat? Right. I could have just said, Stu, you're behind. Mm. But instead, I, I try to couch it in a way that it's a little bit about my where I am hearing it, a little bit about maybe just my particular feeling of it, and that it could be the case. Really, what I'm they know what I'm saying, but I'm being respectful in the way I approach it. And maybe if I was 75 and my name was, you know, Jop von Sweden someday, I might be different. <laughs> but here it's like I'm John Devlin, I'm 35, I'm with with the orchestras I'm working with. That's a good approach, I think, for um, a healthy relationship as you rehearse your your wins could you talk about the actual way you might approach with visual and gesture connection yeah i think similarly to how we are careful in our vocabulary selection our gesture and our breath need to be considered as well because one of the important things to realize is that our body language and our breath are going to affect the way a wind or brass player produces sound probably Mm. much more directly than it would a string section. Yes, the way we take a breath does affect the way that strings and percussion play, but it's much more directly going to affect the sound on a wind and brass since that instrument requires that to produce sound. And the impact of a particular hand gesture can be shocking and intimidating to someone who is, like you mentioned, one on a part compared to part of a section. Mm -hmm. If I give a very articulate gesture to an entire section of strings, the overall blend of sound is there, but that's going to have much more of a noticeable impact when I do it to a single flute player, a single trombone player. And like you said, in many situations, winds and brass players are essentially soloists because Mm -hmm. you're the only one playing that line. So oftentimes a gesture that is more welcoming in nature, whether it's an open hand with a palm up uh, or, or something that's not a direct pointed finger at someone in a very accusatory manner is going to create a more relaxed environment for that individual to produce something that they are more comfortable with in the sound. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything that you said there. And I think that a continuation of the idea of gesture is, we're talking about psychology in this point, is learning your orchestra. Mm-hmm. I know the the best way to approach the personalities in the Wheeling Symphony very well because I've conducted so many concerts with them. I know who really wants a beautiful, encouraging, emotional look before they start something beautiful and sweet and who wants me to look at them two bars before to just make sure that they know that I know they're coming in in two bars (laughs) and then look away. And you as a conductor, especially if you're a guest, the faster you can learn that, the more the orchestra is going to appreciate who you are because they are not only soloists, but individuals. So something that's very important is to understand the psychology of the players with whom you're working and know that as a solo begins, 
One player may engage completely with you and be asking for your guidance for every note and every breath, while another one may hope that you set a context for them to make some beautiful individual art um, and have the orchestra support them. And it's our job to facilitate both of those situations well, while of course always keeping in mind the overall interpretation that we're responsible for with the particular piece. So that's just scratching the surface of the topic of psychology when you're dealing with the various instruments that um, are in the wind and brass sections. But I do think we're going to have a chance to explore more of that as we go section by section. But I, I really enjoyed this as a way to start off the conversation today. I agree. Why don't we head in and start dissecting the individual families of the winds and brass then? Beat two is working with your woodwinds. So in this beat, we're going to explore specifically the woodwind section. And although you're a trumpet player, I think you're going to share with us a little bit about what it's like to collaborate with the woodwinds as a player. And then some of the tips of the trade that you've learned about how to productively work with those crazy people that sit there right behind the strings. <laughs> well, you have very high hopes for me and my uh, ability to communicate that. Thank you, John. <laughs> as if you were not going to contribute on this one. I'm going to throw it to you mostly for the clarinet stuff. Um, look, I mean, I think the first thing to realize is that woodwinds are one of the most colorful sections in the orchestra. I mean, the palette of sound and color that can be produced in these vastly different sonically designed instruments is incredible. And I think it is one of the best areas to explore in terms of the creation of different sounds mm -hmm. as a conductor from the podium because of this incredible uh, diversity of, of sonic quality. But we also have to understand the limitations of the instruments because there are certainly limitations in terms of dynamics, in terms of you know individual color capacities between certain instruments, um, all of which are, are important when addressing and when working with the woodwind family. Yeah, it's funny because even though the woodwinds are cl are clearly the instrument group that I have the most technical knowledge about, I actually find myself speaking to them technically almost never. Hmm. Another thing that is something that you know we talk about a lot is tuning chords in the woodwinds. Another thing that I find myself doing almost never. And so I think what we can do is kind of break this down into like a do's and don'ts because mm -hmm. with the woodwinds, every chord we play we are adjusting 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 we are trying to do this at all times and when you hear something that isn't perfectly in tune there's a million reasons why that can be someone's equipment isn't working well someone isn't hearing it right someone doesn't understand what factor of the core they are the humidity right. can be wrong the temperature can be wrong or someone's barrel is pulled out just a little too much <laughs> and it's changing through the rehearsal right so sometimes i have to start a rehearsal with my instrument pushed all the way together and the conductor is asking me, can you play it sharper? Can you play it sharper? Can't yet. Give me eight minutes, you know? So, <laughs> so there are these things you have to understand. And actually, the tuning a chord in the woodwinds, I mean, if there's something philosophical about it or musical, or an understanding is wrong, fine, mm -hmm. address it. But the chances are that the next time we're on stage with a different set of circumstances, that work doesn't really pay off anyway. So the things yeah. that I really try to work on with woodwinds are character. And they can respond, like you said, with so many different types of colors and techniques and ability level. We can tongue really short. We can tongue very legato. We can play really soft. We can play really loud. We can go really high and really low. So everything is really at your disposal. And I love having a goal. I love saying, like, here's what we're trying to accomplish here. And then being able to fit that in and feeling like that's a challenge. So I'm constantly giving the woodwinds ideas, ideas, ideas. Mm -hmm. Unless, can you put your tongue on the reed this way and pull it off in that way and let the air be behind? Because the last thing we want to hear from somebody is it doesn't sound like your air is properly lined up behind your tongue. And so the articulation is feeling a little flaccid. Can you do something about that? Like you'll lose this right, right. away. But if you yeah. say, I want this to feel extremely present and we want it to feel bubbling and we want there to be this sense of, of, of pulsation within the way you're articulating, that we can do. So that right. you, you mentioned this in psychology. Um, give us those sonic goals and let us fill out the mission. Right. But – Oftentimes I find myself backing away from the woodwinds if I've asked for something a couple of times and it's not happening because that probably means that somebody is not technically capable of achieving the goal and we have to know when to back off. 
And you mentioned maybe not necessarily addressing intonation, but what I will say is that oftentimes intonation can be fixed through the addressing of blend. Right. So if you address the section and you would like the section to blend more with the clarinet sound on a particular chord or listen more to the bassoons and try and blend with that, that will have an effect not only on the color of the instruments, but also inevitably the pitch because they will tend to then lock into that person's sound and intonation as well. And that can help. And as a result, you didn't even have to address the intonation that may just fix itself through the guidance of the ears to one particular color in the section. Right. I mean, that I think lends itself nicely into the like logistics of a woodwind section. First of all, we're really hard workers and we sit next to the same person every single day, no matter what. So if something's out of tune and you give us a look, we know we'll circle it. And then you'll see us at break sitting there and fixing the intonation ourselves. (laughs) Like don't necessarily bog down the rehearsal. Let us do that work on our own, but let's talk a little bit about that structure of the section. So the musical leader of the section is going to be the highest player that's playing at a given time. And if all other things are equal, it's usually going to be the first flute player, not only because their sound is the easiest to identify, but also because the way they hold their instrument, they can guide us and in fact, conduct us in a convincing way that's easy for every one of the eight players or sometimes with auxiliaries more in the section. But for intonation and blend, we're listening down to the lowest instrument, almost always the second bassoon, and we're stacking ourselves on top of that as a fundamental note for our intonation and blend work, with the oboes and flutes usually playing a little bit softer generally, the clarinets actually having to beef up our sound just a little bit because it's not as wide a sound, and the bassoons almost always creating that solid fundamental sound on the bottom. It's such an interesting ecosystem there, and we're all very sensitive to to each other because we know how fickle our, our instruments can be and our equipment can be. And then, you know, if anything else goes wrong, you just, the oboists can blame their reed and we get away. That's right. <laughs> well, you heard it from sensitive John himself. So that's how we work with the woodwind players. Why don't we head on to one of the other sections after a short break from our sponsor. Are you a pianist, cellist, or maybe a viola da gamba player, and now find yourself in front of a full symphony orchestra for the very first time? Do you ever feel rattled when that horn player chips a note, the woodwinds can't tune a chord, or the timpani sounds are just plain wrong, and you can't come up with the right thing to say? Well, fret no more as we introduce the latest innovation from Fake Your Way Industries, Worryless Winds. Worryless Winds is a crash course in how to converse with your winds, brass, and percussion without actually saying a thing. You may get some inquisitive looks from your players, but these fail-safe instructions will be sure to keep the rehearsal moving while not solving your musical problems at all. Examples of phrases that you will learn in the introductory Worryless course include Snare drum, could you play that with a more transparent sound? Trumpets, let's go for a more fanfare sound. Woodwinds, could you tune that chord at the break, please? Trombones, can you keep that same core focus, but just play it a quarter the volume? Oboes, can you be less reedy? And user favorite, horns. Let's try that again, and this time, use warmer air. Your strings will love you focusing on all their misbehaving colleagues in the back, and let's face it, the brass and percussion weren't going to like you anyway. Worryless winds. Meaningless comments for mindless maestros. Beat three is the brass. Arguably the kings of the orchestra, the brass section, John. (laughs) You know, what is unique about the brass, I will start off by saying, is that dynamics, colors of the section, these are all issues that I think come up a lot when rehearsing the brass. Um, The other thing is that setup varies Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. on stage for brass. Different conductors set up their brass differently, much more than any other section on stage. Sure, there's variation in how your string formation will be, but they're all next to each other. Whereas with the brass setup, that may not be the case. Your horns may be on a completely different part of the stage than the trumpets, trombones, and tubas. Or your trumpets could be next to the trombones, or they could be next to the horns, or all of them in a line. So there's just a lot more variation in terms of physical location on stage, I think, for brass. And therefore, there are some considerations from the player side that have to be taken into account throughout this constant moving. Uh, John, have you had any experiences with working with brass and things that you think are more or less successful? I noticed two main things when I started conducting professional orchestras that were different than working with collegiate and youth orchestras. First of all was that the strings responded very differently in terms of what they needed, so much less rhythmically based. But then the larger thing was the relationship with the brass. First of all, um, the sound is overpowering in a good way it's it's Mm -hmm. it's so much more full and rich and sonorous than with the students because the professional way of playing brass has a completely different style and second it sounds behind it just does like it almost sounds like there's a disparity in terms of the agreement of the rhythm and eventually my ears transitioned into feeling like okay i understand what that relationship is but could, I would re- be really interested to hear from the insider perspective, Enrico, about that concept. Do you notice the same thing on the podium when you're working with professional orchestras, that kind of phasing of the brass sound? And is that something that you think about as a player in the section, or is that just a product of, like you said, distance and placement? Uh, we certainly think about it. Uh, what One thing that you have to keep in mind is that as, as a brass player, when we are actually playing, particularly something loud it's going to be really hard for us to hear any of the sounds that are being produced in front of us because our bells, unless you're a horn player, are facing forward, which means the loudest source of sound at that moment is ourselves and our neighbors, which are almost creating this wall of sound yeah. uh-huh. that's that's pretty much blocking out the woodwinds or strings from coming to us, depending on the stage. Uh, we may have the percussion right next to us or behind us, which will be something for us to be able to tie into but otherwise i think the brass listen and rely on ourselves and our entire brass family much more for that unity of sound and then we hope that this wall of sound is placed properly (laughs) Uh, but it is a constant a constant struggle to figure out how much in front of the beat or things like that we feel like we need to play in order to get the sound in the right place. What I have noticed is that certain halls play an an effect too because sometimes on the podium it sounds like the brass are not with the strings, but in fact their sound is just carrying in a different way that by the time the string sound goes up and hits the shell or the cloud and goes out, they'll actually line up. So sometimes certain podium positions can just be misleading. The other thing is to consider, of course, is the horns and their placement really affects them and their ability to hear or play. For example, when we do pops things and we have curtains, drapes to help dampen the sound of really loud concerts, if you put the horns right in front of a draped curtain wall, they hate that Mm -hmm. because they no longer have the kind of reflection of their sound back to them to really hear what they're producing. So giving them a space where they can still have an actual reflective surface for their sound to bounce off of is very important. And that's going to inevitably make it sound slightly less articulate too than anything else because again it's reflecting on other surfaces before it gets to us and speaking of horns one other thing i've noticed is there's a big horn solo coming up and you stare at them give them a sharp cue and then try to manipulate what they're doing like that's not (laughs) not what to do and and you know there's a difference like we said a psychological aspect of figuring out not just who in your orchestra needs what but what types of instruments respond well to that type of um engaged conducting and other people just need a little bit of confirmation and support and welcoming into the picture musically now talk about dissecting psychology let's go on to the family that maybe needs the most dissection of psychology the percussion after this all right enrico beat four is playing with percussion 
I see what you did there. I like that. We've gotten a good alliteration thing going here. Yeah, yeah I know. See, that's the thing. Every time we have to come up with so many titles for <laughs> fake companies, whether our ads and every, all these beats. We gotta, um, next time we're going to go uh, the letters of the alphabet the farthest away as possible. <laughs> so with percussion, basically you tell them to change mallets, right? That's pretty much it. That's the trick. I think that's the end of the beat. Um, so similarly to how I maybe wouldn't say, John, please play that on A instead of B flat if I don't know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what you're talking about, maybe prescribing specific mallets is not your best approach when working with percussion. One thing that I always try to do in advance of actually working with an orchestra is when I'm looking and learning percussion parts, think of the colors and the sounds that Mm -hmm. I want to hear because I think we get into this habit of just saying, okay, it's a roll or, oh, it's this rhythm, that's it. And when you listen to the percussion, if it's the correct rhythm, we think, great, problem solved, they did a good job. But there's so much more potential to the sound and the palette of sound that these instruments can produce Not to mention the fact that they probably have an entire storage unit of equipment somewhere with alternate symbols or, you know, potential mallet colors that it's okay to talk about color of sound and quality and timbre with the percussion section because, one, it shows that we're actually listening and paying attention to them as Mm -hmm. opposed to just ignoring them in the back. And it shows that we feel like their contribution is very important, which it is. So next time there are crash cymbals, think about, is this something that's going to sound best with a bright cymbal sound, something deeper, darker, something, you know, very short and something more or something more sustained in sound. All of these are things that can be affected. And you don't have to specifically say, I would like a, you know, 22 inch symbol on this thing no leave that to them but you can address the fact that the color or the timbre you would like in a specific way yeah that's really powerfully said because percussion is used for effect Mm -hmm. but those instruments are impactful and they are specific colors and they're always going to catch the ear of the listener no matter what they're doing and so having that intended effect in our mind is really important and i know we've talked a little bit about the way psychologically to rehearse the various sections but percussionists love it when some attention is paid to them and it doesn't bother them i found usually at all if you ask them to play by themselves because it clears the air and lets us focus in on those nuances that you're talking about and then we can suggest to them those types of colors and very often you'll see a percussion section bring one of each thing the ones that they think but as soon as a conductor engages their creativity next time they have to bring a wheelbarrow with them (laughs) because they want to have all the options ready for us so that's one thing and then another thing that i actually found very interesting is when i started at wheeling and started having conversations strategically with the principal percussionist that the principal percussionist is the one that assigns the parts to the section players. There's not like percussion one, percussion two, (laughs) percussion three. It's like, okay, who's really good at snare? And can they get over to play that cymbal part? And the bass drum is going to... And that navigation of choreography is a really important component of rehearsal planning. Not only that, but we oftentimes in our score it'll only say there are two percussion parts, but it's actually being played by four people. And Mm -hmm. your understanding of how that is being divided is critical so that you're not yelling at the wrong person thinking that they're the (laughs) snare drum and bass drum player simultaneously when in fact it's two completely different people. And isn't it funny at a rehearsal as you start doing something by like Rimsky-Korsakov that has 94 percussion instruments, you never cue the right place no. to, to start. You're you learn that by the third rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> and then the percussionist that you that they, they play a little game with you, they look like, oh, yes, did you mean something for me? And they know exactly what happened. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, I think that there is a lot to be said. And then the timpani kind of functions differently. The timpanist is a section unto his or her own self. And they are very autonomous. Um, in terms of the way they approach things. They have an idea, and again, similar to to the way a horn player or a flute player has excerpts of that type. Like the timpanist knows, especially if it's a Beethoven or Brahms Mm -hmm. symphony, how it goes, and the types of things that we're going to talk to them about are going to be those really conceptual things, the way really musical. And 
talking to them about where they're striking on the drum or what type of mallet or what type of stroke like don't tell a timpanist that because there are different styles right there's like cleveland style and there's philly style and if you tell them like could you pull your your arm higher before you hit the drum like you're out (laughs) so uh, these are things to be aware of what is okay to ask but what also it's not okay to ask do you i know enrico when you were here actually a couple weeks ago one of the most interesting things we talked about was your awareness of the different colors in the percussion section are there a few things that you might give us tips of ways to achieve those types of dramatic characters that you're a big fan of uh i think one of the critical things is to just take some time at some point to become aware of the different colors in advance so find a percussionist friend who can demonstrate some of the different sounds some of the different possibilities i found that you know even being aware of you know, a symbol can be played so many different ways with different sticks. It can be played with different items. Sometimes there are things placed on a symbol to create effect. The mm-hmm. way in which you scratch a symbol or do different things, all of those have a unique timbre and can be played differently to affect the sound. The wallet on the snare drum. The, right. <laughs> <laughs> all these different things. And just, just if you have a question for your snare drum player about a snare drum quality of sound and you think it should take five minutes budget 50 minutes because once you get them started oh, yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned that wheelbarrow of instruments it is true if you talk snare drum, i mean you will get five snare drums at the next rehearsal well here's this field drum and here's this piccolo snare and he's like what kind of thing you know and it's like oh my goodness yeah there is a right. wealth of stuff to explore Well, we hope you found all of this helpful and useful in our exploration of working with winds. And up next, we'll be bringing on our special guest who is a pro at working with winds, Mallory Thompson. You'll hear that after this short break. Are you tired of spending hours and hours over your summer preparing new arrangements for your school's pep band to perform, only to have the fans completely ignore your group's performances? Do students often seem unimpressed by your band's rendition of Peaches and WAP? Then why not finally give the crowd what they really want to hear, some great classics? Check out Primo Pep Band Publishing. Primo Pep Band offers an incredibly large library of all-time greatest hits by timeless composers like Mozart, Beethoven, and Mendelssohn. Why spend your time constantly arranging the year's top 40 hits into pep band charts just to have them go out of style by the very next school year? The timeless arrangements from Primo Pep Band have stood the test of time for centuries. All of Primo Pep Band's arrangements are true to their original glorious composition with the added touch of some awesome drumline parts, and blaring sousaphone bass lines. Some of our most popular reimagined titles are even themed by school, including Mozart's Dux Giovanni Overture, Rossini's Bruin of Seville, Mendelssohn's Hebrides the Husky, Handel's Wildcat Music, and Rossini's La Gator Ladra. As a bonus, you'll never worry about acquiring license rights again. All of Primo's arrangements are fully legal because, hey, they're centuries old and well within the public domain. So don't waste another second on Finale. Order your Primo Pep Band arrangements today. Welcome back. We are joined now by Mallory Thompson, who is the Director of Bands, Professor of Music, Coordinator of the Conducting Program, and holds the John W. Beattie Chair of Music at Northwestern University. As the third person in the university's history to hold the Director of Bands position, Dr. Thompson conducts the Symphonic Wind Ensemble, teaches undergraduate and graduate conducting students, and administers all aspects of the band programs. We are so thrilled to have you joining us today. Thank you so much for giving a little time to everything conducting. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, we are so happy to have you as well, Mallory. I remember the first time I saw you conduct, uh, you didn't know I was there, but it was at the Midwest Clinic, which I went to, which for some reason they hold in December in Chicago. So I remember I, w- I, c- I was a student, so I couldn't afford the hotel. So I was a mile away walking down what, Michigan Avenue and negative. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so could you introduce yourself to our audience, which is, you know, conductors of all ages and talk about your career and the work that you do now at Northwestern? Sure. Um, well, I've been um, on the faculty at Northwestern now for 25 years, and um, I, uh, I guess I really began my career as a trumpet player. I attended Northwestern for my bachelor's degree 
in um, music education, but I really came here because my plan was to become an orchestral trumpet player. Um, my embouchure intervened, and uh, it turned out that as unnatural as trumpet was for me, conducting seemed to be natural. Uh, not that it hasn't been a load of work and uh, that it continues to be a load of work, but it just suited my nature, and um, it just really seemed to come to me really in a positive way. And it gave me a chance to pull together a lot of my interests and a lot of my um, skill set. I progressed through the college teaching ranks, starting at a very small school in Michigan called Alma College, where I'm not joking, my job description was college community symphony orchestra, concert band, jazz band, marching band. I taught applied high brass, music education methods, conducting and orchestration. Wow. Yeah, I was I was like one day ahead of my classes, uh, just because of all of the all of the rep and everything that I had to do, and then from there I went to Eastman where I did my doctorate in conducting, and then I went to Bucknell University, where I taught for three years. And with every job, the job description gets a little bit smaller, uh, which is. Awesome. And then I got a one-year appointment uh, teaching at Oberlin, where I did the wind ensemble and taught an advanced undergraduate conducting class. University of South Florida in Tampa for six years. Uh, Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music for one. And then uh, Northwestern uh, sort of headhunted me um, to come back home and um, I, uh, I just feel, to be honest with you, I feel really blessed that I've had the opportunity to teach all of the places that I have. And every place I've been, I've just learned such incredible things and gotten to work with such wonderful people, both students and colleagues. Of course, Northwestern is my home and my heart. And uh, so I'm very, very happy to be here uh, doing this work. And I must say, looking at some of your past work, it must be so fortunate for the students who have had the privilege to work with you to get to participate in your ensembles and your programs. One of the things that I've noticed and really admire about the work I've seen you do is the incredible amount of commissioning work, for example, that you bring in living composers to give students the opportunity to play new music by living composers, whether it's John Adams, John Corigliano, Augusta Reed Thomas. And I wonder... From a conductor perspective, how do you go about selecting those composers with whom you choose to collaborate with, and, and what is that process like? Well, um, I try as much as I can to collaborate with uh, composers uh, whose music I'm going to record, mm -hmm. because if I'm going to commit it to, <laughs> you know, um, lifelong or lives long existence, I want to do the best job I can in uh, faithfully. Um, realizing their work. Um, so that's one aspect. Another, sometimes we're just lucky we can tie in with people that are in town uh, with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And we have something called the Nemers Award, which is supported both by the Chicago Symphony and by Northwestern. And, and through that, we had the opportunity to work with John Adams was the first person that received that award, Oliver Newson. As a result of winning that award, they come and do residencies on campus. The Carigliano residency, which was not part of the Nemers, that was just something that uh, the conducting program put together ourselves. That was a really wonderful uh, col collaboration because it involved literally hundreds of students and all of these different ensembles. And John was here for a week for all of these performances. It was just fantastic. So, you know, I, if it's a commission, um, I've really, I, I want to think if I'm getting this right, I really have only been a solo commissioner for one piece in the last 25 years. And that was a work by Joel Puckett called That Secret from the River. Um, I, I chose Joel because I really loved his music. I, lo I love the way he thinks about music in broader holistic sense, philosophically, it can be literary, it can be art and so on. And um, I just felt like he and I had a 
a really good relationship and understanding for him to write the special kind of piece that I was looking for, which, which he did. But otherwise I've just been part of, you know, a million consortium commissions, which is just genius now and enables, enables us to commission such wonderful composers and, and enhance our repertoire in such a vivid and valuable way. And then everybody gets to have a piece of the pie and, uh, and, and feel, you know, like you're breathing life into something. And it seems like the wind ensemble world really has this down far more <laughs> than the orchestral world in terms of the amount of commissioning and new music that you are playing on a regular basis, which is just so incredible. And I wish we were doing more of that on our side of things. Well, we have a, you know, I mean, one thing about our community, and I think the, I think that there are a lot of people in the orchestral community that are uh, embracing this as well. Um, that that we don't keep secrets, and and if if Mike Voda knows of a great piece, he's going to tell me, and if I know of a great piece, I'm going to tell all of my friends, and mm-hmm. and and we want to you know pass it around so people have a chance to share that music with their students and their audiences as well. Yeah, we're hinting a little bit at some of the differences between the orchestral and the wind ensemble world, but you know Enrico was a trumpet player and I was a clarinet player. So we're all coming from this wind background. And um, we no doubt that background as an instrumentalist, specifically a wind player, it informs all of our ideology around sound and sound making for our ensembles. So could you talk a little bit about how your orchestral background fuses with your current position as a wind ensemble director and what your philosophy is on that ideal sound? Oh, yes. Well, you never forget your entry drug into music, right? (laughs) If I close my eyes, I can remember everything about the first time I led a big orchestral crescendo and had everybody like come up underneath me. And I was hooked. That was, that was thrilling to me. Um, I've, I've been blessed with having the opportunity to work with so many wonderful teachers, conducting teachers and uh, trumpet teachers. But, but I have to say that the, the person that was the greatest influence on me really was my trumpet teacher at Northwestern, a man named Vincent Chickowitz. And Mr. Chickowitz had this approach, which was really uh, adaptation of Arnold Jacobs' approach uh, to wind playing which is the idea of wind and song and this sort of effortless, free-blowing, you know, big, resonant singing quality um, when, you, when you play the instrument. And that is a huge guiding principle for me in all of the music that we make, that regardless of the difficulty, the angularity, the technical facility required in playing any music, it still needs that that free blowing, that rich, um, effortless, effortless sound. I'm also incredibly influenced by my colleagues and by hearing the Lyric Opera Orchestra and and growing up hearing the Chicago Symphony. And by growing up, I mean really in my formative years, which for most of us is our undergraduate time, just uh, soaking that sound in. And that's, that's one of the things that I really encourage my students to do here is that this, this becomes your expectation. The, the sound that you, you are what you eat, right? And, and the sound that you ingest becomes what you expect to play and what, what is acceptable to you and what is, your, what is your ideal. So I have to ask, what was, when you closed your eyes, the piece you led that orchestral crescendo on as a trumpet player? Uh, I think it was, it was Delia's Walk to the Paradise Garden. Wow. A tone poem. Yeah. Beautiful. The way your face looked when you're telling that story, I had to know. (laughs) And the conductor was William Jones. Ah, okay. It was the Minnesota All-State Orchestra. We are in such an interesting time, I think, where the industry is talking about so many different social issues and political issues, which are bringing up a lot of questions about the types of composers that we are programming. 
How are you approaching these issues currently at Northwestern, and what are your thoughts going forward in terms of how this will affect what you you choose to to program? Ordinarily, my programming is uh, based on masterworks and uh, doing everything I can to prepare my students for a professional career orchestral or in um, in a military band but but I still base all of that in you know orchestral foundation so uh, performance practice and um, um, just some transcriptions thrown in with uh, new music and and some uh, some of the the very very best standard repertoire that exists for winds mm-hmm. and n- moving forward I am much more mindful after having a number of conversations with a lot of colleagues about programming underrepresented minorities. And in particular, I think that this is just very personal for me, but I was really uh, moved by Breonna Taylor's murder. And I, I feel like now I would really like to uh, with the, the the remaining time in my career, I would really like to be advocate for female black composers, just because that was that was so moving to me. There's a lot of repertoire, and and, and there are a lot of composers that I'm going to have to study and dig into, and um, spend a lot of time learning their music, so I can incorporate that uh, more into my repertoire, and that's part of my plan. Previously on the podcast, we've interviewed Jason Fedig and Mike Voda, who shared with us a lot of our audiences, of course, orchestral conductors, some some of their gems. Would you mind sharing a few of the things that you think would be worth all conductors knowing about that might utilize, say, the orchestral wind brass percussion section as opposed to something that incorporates strings as well that we should all be considering in our programming? Yes, I prepared for this and I made a little list. We send questions in advance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I want to be a good student. Okay, so so one piece I would that I, I wonder if my colleagues had on their list is John Harbison's music for Eighteen Winds. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, don't I love that piece, and I think I'm hoping maybe spring quarter we can like. Eek, Get up to 18. <laughs> no, shh, don't tell anyone. Uh, but I'm hoping because I, you know, I'd like to, like, I'd want to do that piece as soon as possible. Fill in the blank serenade, right? Dvorak serenade, Strauss serenade in E flat, Strauss suite in B flat, opus four. Um, I did a Verez Octandra this mm-hmm. quarter, and that's just all, that is just a wonderful, wonderful piece. Uh, just so, so fresh still. Uh, something that would work well would be the uh, Wagner Trauer Musik. That's mm-hmm. a little bit bigger. Um, I would advocate for uh, something other than Fanfare for the Common Man by Copeland. I would advocate for the Ceremonial Fanfare, mm-hmm. which I think is is it's a very moody fanfare and frankly much more difficult mm-hmm. than a fanfare for the common man. I think that's really, really beautiful. Oh, you could always do the Von Williams uh, scherzo from Symphony Number no. 8. Mm-hmm. Beethoven Rondino. It's wonderful. I actually like that a little bit better than the octet. So at the beginning, you said love with like five O's uh, about the Harbison. Could you tell us a little bit more about that piece and what makes it sparkle for you? Oh my gosh. It's just, uh, it's so colorful and uh, it's colorful in in rhythm, texture, timbre. Every instrument gets its moment to shine. It's, um, It's a perfect, it requires absolute, absolutely the highest level of orchestral performance practice. Like perfect articulation, great pitch, just the sound. It's just screams orchestral winds. It's, mm. it's just a fantastic piece. 
Well, Mallory, you know, uh, Enrico and I never expected to be uh, podcast hosts, but you know, about a year from right now, we started this little project. <laughs> and so we're, now we're in the middle of season three. And I have to say this was the most fun interview for me, getting to meet you and the energy and enthusiasm that you shared with us. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to meet both of you. And I'm really honored that you asked me to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now, the coda. Welcome back to the Coda. Uh, I just enjoyed this episode so much because we got to revisit a little bit of our playing days and talk about yeah. clarinets and trumpets and what a conversation with Mallory. That's right. I mean, she is incredible. First of all, a ball of energy and has so <laughs> much to offer. I don't know. I, I think there is so much that's applicable beyond just the wind ensemble realm. When you talk to yeah. someone who's such a great conductor like Mallory, it's applicable to all conductors, whether you're a choral conductor, operatic conductor, whatever it may be. And just some of the philosophical approaches. And I was so thankful that she shared some of her ideas on favorite repertoire. And I mean, you name it, it was just really great to get to speak with her. And it's just a demonstration of how many different paths there are in our field. I mean, we grew up all playing B-flat instruments in band, and I'm conducting, you know, classical and all other sorts of repertoire. You are one of the most famous pops conductors in the world. <laughs> and then Mallory is conducting the premier wind ensemble program in the country and sending players to the top orchestras and bands all around the globe. And it's just as what we really do is we're, we're educators and infusers of enthusiasm into music right and that can go so many different directions absolutely well next month we're going to be going in a different direction which will be talking about soloists and the collaboration between conductor and soloists which is something that crosses every type of ensemble whether you're an opera conductor wind ensemble conductor or orchestral conductor you are probably going to be working with soloists at some point that's right everything conducting's may topic is going to be all things soloists so we're going to have a round table that we're really excited about some great personalities are going to share stories actually at all stages of their careers about how it works to be on the stage and collaborating with conductors Absolutely. So if you don't already, follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, uh, not on Twitter. Sorry, we don't do that. That's not our thing. Uh, and of course, we appreciate you sh spreading the word. If you like Upbeat, tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell your family to come listen to us, subscribe, and rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you may hear us. But until then, we look forward to our next conversation. You'll hear it here on our next Upbeat. Upbeat.